This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 97. We're excited to be interviewing Emily Oster today. Um, She is a professor at Brown, an economist, and the author of the new book, Crib Sheet, which is a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. So lots of great things we're going to be talking about with her later in this episode. The reason we reached out to Emily is because a lot of people mentioned on my blog that she would make a great guest. And then Sarah also recently heard her uh, on, on Freakonomics, right? Uh, that's Yeah, it aired just uh, recently. The episode aired in early May, if you want to go back and look at that, because it's a fantastic episode if you enjoy hearing her on this podcast. And specifically, she delved into some topics that I felt were right up our best of both worlds alley and thought she'd make a fantastic uh, guest for us. So we were thrilled when, you know, she was able to make room in her guest speaking calendar right after Freakonomics to hang out with us. <laughs> Freakonomics <laughs> and best of both worlds, which you you listen to both of those, Sarah. What, what else are you That's listening true. to today or yeah. these, these days? 
I, I was I was wondering if you had any new podcasts you liked. I you know I haven't had that many new ones. I actually there's a finance one that I've been enjoying called How to Money, although it's very um, male perspective. I'll have to look to see if there um, any uh, you know more. More, although they have a very nice family perspective. They both have large families they and they do. feel like spending out on those families is worth it. So I really like that. Maybe they just need to have their partners speak. I, I am actually a guest on this show. Um, what? How to Money at some point. I'm not sure if it will have aired by the time this is it out. It didn't or not. air yet because yeah, I would have heard it. But between when we're recording this and the out. But yeah, no, they're, Matt and Joel are, are very fun. Um, and yeah, they're both big expanding families. Uh, so it was uh, good to, good to talk with them from that perspective as well. Well, I'm also super excited to say that Note to Self is returning. Mm, yeah, um, Manoush. Manoush has had another podcast in the meantime, um, but I am just in love with uh, Note to Self's topics, and I'm excited that that's coming back. And I still listen to a lot of a lot of different things. Um, I do like in that if you're looking for something sort of similar to our kind of content, maybe less work related. I still like the Mom Hour a lot. Um, yeah. What about you? I listen to um, Happier. I listen to um, What Should I Read Next. Uh, that's That's been great yes, to, to listen to. I still love to. that one as well. You know, I'm not in the car all that much uh, in terms of longer chunks of time. And so I, I find that there's less space for listening to a lot of podcasts. But, you know, I certainly like those. And, and um, I've enjoyed listening to ones like How to Money, you know, trying trying that out before I was a guest on that. I definitely, I mean, I listen to everything that I'm on a guest that I'm a guest on, like before I'm on the show. So I feel like there's a, a wide variety of podcasts that I've tried out uh, here and there. There's also another, um, I've been listening to Not Safe for Work. Or no, maybe it's called Safe for Work. Yeah, <laughs> Safe for Work. Not Safe for Work. I don't... It's a good, it's like a career podcast. Um, it's like, it's similar to us without the family uh, side of mm, things. Gotcha. So um, those of you who enjoy us might want to check that out as well. That's cool. Yeah. And uh we, we continue to record this. We've been batching a lot to get us ahead of the summer uh, because it's uh, going to be a lot of back and forth of both of us being off <laughs> at different points in the summer. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, some of these. The timing may be a little bit odd, but uh, hopefully our listeners will forgive us if we're talking about August and it's like June. <laughs> so. No, we thought ahead about that. So pretty much we try not to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, here is Emily. I'm so excited to speak with her. So Sarah and I are thrilled to welcome Emily Oster to the podcast today. As we said, she's the author of the new book, The Crib Sheet, which is a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. So Emily, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. Hi, I'm Emily. I am a professor of economics at Brown University in my day job, and I am the author of this book, Crib Sheet, which is about using data to parent. And I also have an earlier book called Expecting Better, which is about using data to be a better pregnant person. Uh, and I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Yeah. And you have two children who have been you know, the subject of, of much of this research as well, right? Yes. Sorry, I should have mentioned the most important thing. I have a four-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter at home. Excellent. Well, one of the things that intrigued us uh, and intrigues me in general is that economists are kind of special. They have a different way of thinking about the world. I know I enjoy listening to Freakonomics as one example of a podcast that, that explores that kind of thinking. Can you tell our listeners, like, what does it mean to be an economist? How do you see things a little bit differently? Yeah, so I th I think there's many kinds of economists, um, and the we run the range from what I think a lot of people would think about, which are like 
people who study the Federal Reserve and think about interest rates and think about stocks, uh, which is not really the kind of economics I do. But I think that there's there's a large pool of of economists now who are kind of really into analyzing data and trying to get causal relationships out of data, in many cases around issues that are maybe less traditionally associated with economics, like parenting, but more like health or um, behavior, 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 behavior. And so, you know, I, for me, I think of economics as kind of being partly about, uh, about data and evidence and trying to get causality out of, out of data and partly about decision-making and thinking about how people should make decisions and what is the right way to to make choices. And so I think that, that for me, those two things kind of come together and you can apply them to a, in a lot of different areas, some of which are more traditional than others for economists. Yeah. And so your book takes this you know approach of looking at data and looking at how people should make decisions and turns it on this topic of you know first pregnancy for the first book and now parenting, uh, especially during the early years. And, you know, one of the reasons we're very excited to have you on, it's, it's one of my personal biggest pet peeves that so, suddenly somebody will get very authoritative and say, well, all the research says kids turn out best if you do X. Now, what maybe you could explain to people, what are the inherent problems of, of a statement like that? <laughs> so there is almost nothing about which all the research says the same thing. And I think this is one of the things that frustrates me also so much is that this sort of phrase a study show, like studies show, studies show everything. Okay. There's always the studies show everything. And the, the challenge is to say, you know, well, what is the, what are all the studies show, all the studies show when you look at them all together and you try to understand which are the best studies and which are the, are the least good studies and, you know, which ones should we, should we rely on? And I think in some sense saying all the research shows just betrays like a lack of understanding in some ways of how this works, because even for something where it's very clear that it's it's sort of the data is in one way or the other, you will still often find a study that shows the opposite because, you know, studies are not perfect. And sometimes there are some good studies and less good studies and some studies are wrong. And so I think we we need to take a more holistic view, but it is very hard to do that in the face of so many pieces of information that come at you. Yeah. Well, and also the question of how kids turn out. I mean, this is also a, a problem because any study needs a measurable endpoint. And I'm just not sure how turning out <laughs> translates into um, a measurable endpoint. Yeah, no, it's it's right. And I think even, you know, even in the book, there's this sort of, there's all the limitations I talk about. And then there's the, on top of that, the limitation that like in our best case scenario, the outcomes we're looking at are like test scores. Right. Or, you know, behavior, like some measure of behavior. Right. And those are the things we can measure. But of course, as a parent, like, yeah, maybe those are things that you care about, but they're certainly not the limit of the things you care about. You know, I want my kids to be like happy and nice and, pro- and there's no nice, like forget about like all these <laughs> other things. No nice. Nice. <laughs> they don't measure nice. Nobody's like, hey, is your kid like kind to other children? That's not a thing. You know, there's externalizing behavior. There's like pieces of that, but there isn't. There, we're sort of missing some of these more holistic things because they're hard to measure. And I think that, you know, that's an inherent limitation, but it it does mean that, that these these conversations end up sounding sort of like, oh, my goal is to like optimize my kid on IQ and behavior outcomes. And, and I don't think that's anybody's actual goal. <laughs> yeah. And the Probably funny not. thing, like you talk about everything tends to have two sides. So even if you did manage to use data to create the smartest kid that could backfire anyway, because you may have sacrificed something else equally valuable, like 
being nice or creative or not having a psychiatric disease or something, right. <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> Just like, for example. <laughs> example. All bad things, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. So, you know, you're building your career as, a, as an economist and, and then, you know, you and your husband start a family and, and you know, you decide to take this approach to pregnancy and, and childcare. What were some of your biggest surprises as you looked into this? Was there anything that you were surprised to find or like, whoa, I didn't think that would be there in the data? So I think there was more of that in the case of pregnancy. Um, and so when I sort of think about the two the two books, you know, there's a lot of things in the in the first book about pregnancy that are kind of like, you know, people tell you you can't have any sushi, but actually like it's fine to have sushi. And so there were sort of many, many more things like that or like the one there that I was super surprised by that I remain very surprised by is about bed rest. So a lot of people are told to, to go on bed rest. And it turns out like I, there is like, almost there's basically nothing for which bed rest is a good idea. And there are a lot of reasons it's not a good idea. And yet it is still prescribed all the time. So there, there were many things like that in pregnancy. I think in the parenting stuff, you know, there's, there's a few things that kind of, I think people find somewhat surprising, but a lot of, I guess a lot of what's surprising about this, about the book is that there are many good choices. And so we are sort of coming in always with like the idea that like there's, there's like a right choice. Like there's like a right way to sleep with your kid, a right way to feed them. And, and, you know, in most of these or many of the the decisions there, there isn't really a right way. And so that means that there isn't a fact that is surprising. There is an approach that is surprising, but I will, I will highlight one thing that I think that we, that I, I didn't, didn't realize until I, I did the book, which is about the way that you introduce food. So there, when you, I don't know if you guys have, you guys have little kids or big kids. Yeah, and, or, and I'm, I'm a, I'm actually a pediatric endocrinologist, so I am like going to listen with ears open. But okay, actually, so yeah. <laughs> so when I was thinking about feeding our dog, like introducing solid food, we you got this like very specific list of like, first you give them rice cereal and then, you know, every three days you give them a new vegetable and first it's vegetables and then it's fruit. And like, there's sort of like very, very, very specific instructions. And I was like, okay, there must be a reason that it is exactly like this. Like there must be a reason that you have to start with this and then you have to do this and then you have to do this because like, why would it be so specific if there wasn't a reason? And then the answer was like, this is a fine way. There's nothing wrong with this way of doing it. It's like perfectly fine, but there isn't anything wrong with like giving them oatmeal first or, you know, like giving them some fruit before the, I mean, there's like, it was sort of like, there's a logic, but there didn't it didn't feel like there was a deep underlying evidence base for like why you had to start and do it exactly this, this way. And I I was surprised. I think that's so funny. And my gut feeling is that people made a list because it was like an easier answer. (laughs) Like parents wanted a prescription and they're like, someone wrote it down and they're like, Oh, that looks good. And then that's the new handout and you can sound all good saying it. And it wasn't hurting anyone. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't like, unlike some things like bed rest, this isn't like a problem. Like this is a totally fine way to do it. It's just, it's like, if you didn't want to, you know, I remember my son didn't like rice cereal. He just like hated it. And he was, and my husband was like, why are, like, but why? We're failing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, why doesn't he like this? And he was like, and then he was like, maybe he'll like, 
you know, like kanji. And then he did. And then it was like, I guess we're going to give him that. This is kid number two. Yeah, 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 kid exactly. number two. Yeah, well, you know, awesome. you run the risk that people are like, oh, oh God, I God. did something terribly wrong if they introduce yellow vegetables before red vegetables or whatever the order was, right? Because, right? yes, it's I remember green, it was very and then yellow, yeah. and then the orange is, something, you know. <laughs> Turns out it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's okay. All the vegetables All of them are, are good. fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and the but, funny but thing. But it turns out, you know, people make life-altering decisions based on things. I mean, probably, you know, what order you feed your kid in is not terribly life-altering, but things like parental employment are a lot more life-altering. And, you know, you looked into the data on this, you know, and how, how people wind up being very judgmental in both directions without particularly great evidence. So, so what did you find in, in terms of the data on parental employment? And I'm not saying here whether mom stays home or not, because I love the way you put it. What is the optimal configuration of adult work hours for your household? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. It's very catchy. I'm hoping that'll catch <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, um, You won't see that in a headline anytime soon. But okay. I'm not going to know. You don't think so? It's too many words. So, you know, first of all, I think this is, this is a place where it's very, it's, this is a place where the data is somewhat limited or, you know, the approaches are somewhat limited because this choice is really wrapped up in other things about the family. And so it's just, it's a hard question to answer. So the best we can do is we can say, okay, what is the data say of the data that we have what does it say and so these studies compare the kids of moms who stay home to the kids of moms who who work and or parents where both parents work versus one parent staying home it's usually the mom although not not always of course and you know what these show is that the outcomes are very similar that there isn't any particular reason to think that and again here we're in outcomes like IQ or behavior uh, things you can measure in test scores and in in schools and and the kids look look the same there you know maybe is a little bit of a hint that kids where one parent works part-time and one parent works full-time maybe do a little bit better but it seems like that is probably because that's like a very unusual family configuration which only happens in particular you know kind of heavily selected uh, selected families so I think that that what this means, and you know what I what I took from this is that the the choice of you know how to organize your adult work hours should be mostly about what is going to work for the family overall. And I think we have this sense that we like start this conversation with what is the best for the baby. Like, let me do the thing that's the best for the kid, the best for the kid. And they said, well, there's just like there's no best for the kid. There, like this, anything is fine. And so you need to figure out what's best for your for your family. And one part of that is budgeting, but one part of that is what you want to do. So when I talk about this, I say you should think each person in the family should think about what do you want to do? Do you want to work? Do you not do you not want to work? And as I've talked about this book with women, there are a number of women who have told me it never even occurred to me to ask that question. Like when I was making a decision about whether to work after I had a kid, it never occurred to me to think about whether I wanted to. But why is parental preference viewed as not a relevant variable in, in so much of this? I mean, I think it, it's because this has gotten wrapped up in in this general, you know, modern approach to parenting. That's our culture. Yeah. Right? We're, like, we're just mean, trying to like optimize our, optimize our kids. Enjoy our lives. That's not what we're here for right now. Right. right? I we're mean, here for our optimizing. podcast <laughs> serves to hopefully go against that. And I love that you're actually bringing numbers into that. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I personally enjoyed that the, uh, you looked at the marginal value of each extra hour with your kids uh, versus <laughs> was like the marginal utility of like the sixth hour with your kids is probably yeah. lower than the, uh, no, but I, 
I mean, I think there is this this resistance in their culture to to saying that as particularly as a mom, but as a parent in general, like people don't somehow saying like, yeah, I have a job because I like to have my job. I like it. I like to go to work. I, it's fun. I enjoy it. It gives me fulfillment that is different from the fulfillment I get from my kids. And I don't like my kids. I like my kids. They're great. They're the best. But I also like my job. And I think we are, we have become kind of resistant to saying that. And we're kind of resistant to saying in the other direction too. I think people who stay at home, there's also a resistance to saying, you know, I'm staying at home because I like that. That's the thing that I enjoy doing right now. Because there's so much resistance to saying that it ends up kind of being much more fraught than, than it would be and much more con- conflict driven than if everyone could just be like, yeah, I'm doing the thing that I want that works for me. So of course, maybe it isn't the thing that works for you because we're not the same person and that's fine, we could still be friends and not in the two tribes of people. <laughs> yeah, or the tribes split there. The tribes. The tribes. Um, so if you, you know, obviously if, if both parents are employed outside the home, then child care comes into this. There's probably going to need to be some sort of paid child care. And you looked at this too. So, you know, both the question of like nanny and daycare and what makes good care for that? Is there, are there any negative outcomes for having done this? Are there positive outcomes for, you know, putting your child in, in daycare? So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think, again, like I'll say, this is a hard thing to study because the kinds of choices that people make about childcare are wrapped up in other things that they that they do. But to the extent we have data, you know, I think it what it suggests is that there are maybe you know, daycare very early on maybe has some small impacts on behavior and daycare later on has some, those are small negative impacts and daycare later on has some small positive impacts on test scores. But all of these effects are small. When you say Uh, early on. Like in the first two, it's sort of in the first like 18 months versus like 18 months to four and a half. Okay. Um, So, so sort of like the, yeah, the first year, year and a half versus the, the like slightly later period. But all of those effects are really little. So like relative to other kinds of variation across kids, they're, they're just not that important in terms of just size. And they're totally swamped by home environment. So things like, you know, how, what is happening in your house is way, 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 way more important than the differences in childcare that you are having. Um, and so in some sense, you know, that's again, like, boy, it's really important to be a good parent. <laughs> so maybe that's more stressful, but there is a sort of less stressful aspect of it that says that you're making these choices is, is not, this is not the choice that is going to make your kid smart or not smart or badly behaved or, or better behaved. And so a lot of it should be about, again, sort of what is going to work for your for your family. And then I talk a little bit about, you know, particularly in the case of daycare, like how do you choose a good like a good daycare, like what is what does it mean for a daycare to be to be good? Because we do know that daycare quality or nanny quality, as measured in these studies, is associated with better outcomes. And I I try to be clear that quality is not like organic snacks. And I think that sometimes it's easy to slip into the idea that like I should go to the daycare with the fanciest stuff and the like that's probably correlated, but that ultimately really what matters is like, like an engaged caregiver who's paying attention to the kids and, and not, you know, whether the, I don't know, whether there's like a particular kind of blocks or something like that. Yeah. Any kind of blocks are Any fine. Any kind of blocks are fine. Yeah, exactly. Any and blocks. And you, so you mentioned these tiny effects and that's looking at daycare versus home with parent? What about home with nanny? No. So that's looking at daycare versus home. So these, these studies are, are kind of limited, but that, that statement is looking at daycare versus home with caregiver, um, not the mom. 
Oh, okay. so that's Got daycare. It. So I try to sort of pull out this study that looks at like so the, that could be a family member. So it's like a little tricky. So it's not nanny. It's but it could be a grandparent. But I think it's it's distinctly not stay at home parent. Got it. Interesting. Um, well, Sarah is particularly interested in your research on screen time. This is this is something <laughs> she uh, she brings up a lot here. And you know, your your husband is also an economist. I know one of the studies you looked at in your book is is one that he did. Correct. Yes, it is a study. It is a study about television exposure and kids. And so in that study, you know, I think that the challenge in looking at things about screen time, we can talk about how I think the data in general is very poor. But, you know, the challenge in looking even at something like TV exposure and kids outcomes is that the the kinds of kids who watch more TV are from families that are different from the kinds of kids who watch less TV. And so it's hard to know if it's the, it's the TV. So so Jesse's paper, so if you want to study this and get some causal impact, you need to uh, actually find some sort of random or plausibly random variation in the amount of TV that kids watch. So what Jesse does is they look at, he and his co-author look at when TV was introduced uh, in the 1950s. And some some places got TV earlier than others. So there were some kids who were exposed to TV for more of their like young childhood and some kids who were exposed for less. And when they they compare those, those groups, it doesn't look like um, the TV is having negative impacts. Now, I think that's like a very compelling argument. Their paper is very compelling on the topic of TV in the 1950s, which is maybe has some has some relevance actually people watch more tv than you might expect given that there were like three channels um but it is it is probably not the answer to like can my kid play ipad apps <laughs> which i think we don't have an answer to that's fascinating yeah it's i mean even in the short time so we yeah you asked if lauren i had kids we've got kids ranging from we've got how many kids we have between us seven, seven yeah. ranging between 18 months and 12 and even in the time since my oldest, who's now seven, was a baby. And now I feel like the quote unquote yeah. rules have changed. And then kind of knowing that there's not a lot of substance behind those rules in the first place. Like, again, being a pediatrician, sometimes I turn to AAP. But, you know, you have to also look at what's behind that, right? Because yeah. that's still just somebody's opinion summing up the quote unquote data. Yeah. And whether yeah, that's I think being it, looked at properly is, is sometimes in question. Yeah. And I think in this case, it's not, it goes beyond like, maybe their understanding of, of the data isn't isn't that good, but just that there isn't a lot of data. So if you want to know, like, what's the impact of these kind of frequent screen phones, iPads, whatever, on like high school graduation? Well, there, there's like no way we could ever know that because the kids who are graduating from high school now are are not we're not exposed to screens as as little kids, and so we're sort of relying on an expert opinion about these topics, which has some value. And I think that it is it sort of has to be the case that having your kid watch nine hours of TV a day is bad because there wouldn't be any other time to do stuff. And, you know, similarly, having your three-year-old stay up late at night playing Xbox games instead of sleeping, we can, that's also not good. On the other hand, I think the the guidelines make it seem like if you have your kid, your two-year-old watch a half an hour of Caillou while you take a shower and make dinner, that that's like also terrible. And it seems much less likely that the data supports that conclusion. Yeah. I actually, the, the, the moment that, that I finally was like, I'm no longer listening to this was when I suggested <laughs> that parents need to watch along with their children. <laughs> I'm not watching like, Caillou. That is I'm the out. one time I'm you out. get a break. Like, I'm not going to sit there and watch Berenstein Bears or Caillou or whatever. Like, that is, no. No, so, I, I will yeah. say my husband is actually, this is like his dream because there are so many, my kids are now old enough that they both like to watch like animated shows like made for 
you know, seven-year-olds, but that's like, his, that's his that's thing. His thing. <laughs> so they've been watching like Shira. There's like a Ooh. Shira reboot Ooh, really? on Netflix. And so he just like sits like for TV time. Like, I'm like, I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to have a glass of wine. I'm going to make dinner. Like, it's going to be great. But he like, he's like, he's like, this is so great. I get to like sit with the kids on the couch and watch Shira. So it's great. But it's not because the AAP told him to. It's because he, <laughs> he loves Shira. And then they ran out of Shira and the kids started watching a show called PJ Masks. Uh, oh, my kids Shira. love that. Yeah. yeah. And Jesse was like, no, nah, I'm not. No, like, no, I'm yeah. going to work. Well, let's start. They should check out Power Rangers. Yeah, well, I bet yeah, they'd yeah, like it. Also, yeah, people fans yeah. of that. But <laughs> like the Voltron, new Voltron. Yeah. We're onto Voltron also. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know. So, so what, what happens when you have two parents who are economists? I think I, w- I, I laughed so hard when I saw that you two communicate via task management software of the so As- Asana, whatever it is. So how did that Give us come our, to be? Our, we actually tell us how it came to be and also actually give our listeners a flavor of those exact logistics because people always tell us they want those details. Right. So so Asana is a task management tool that that I use at work also. I think it's sort of commonly used at, at work. And the idea is that, you know, if there's a task, so like buy new summer clothes for the children. One way you could approach that is, you know, you could just say, like send an email, like, hey, you have to buy new summer clothes. Somebody has to buy new summer clothes for the kids. And in a task like that, it might be okay to send an email. But, you know, what if there's a lot of discussion? Like, oh, well, which, you know, what do they need? And like, did you talk to them about it? And did you do the review of the existing clothes? And do we have any leftover clothes from Penelope that still fit Finn? You know, like there's some topics and it, it fills up your inbox. And you also, then maybe you can't find it. What if the person starts a new thread with like links to the things that they bought? That's not very helpful. Then you're like trying to get your emails all together. This is the reason people use task management products at work. And so we we use them at our house. So we have, so you like log onto Asana and you open a task that says like review, you know, review summer clothing. And then people can comment like I looked through the clothes and she only has two pairs of shorts and, you know, I'm going to order these shorts and I'm ordering these things. And then the other person say, well, what about like, like, what about the shorts that I left in the closet from last year? And, you know, you can like, you thread your, and then when you're done, you can click complete and then you feel like you've gotten something done. I think I'd really like the awesome. complete button. That's a, that was, yeah, the complete, the complete button. Complete is button. I mean, I think this is, this is like part of the general thing where I think that we don't always take uh, the lessons from our work into our house, even though sometimes we, even though there is like an element of management in, in parenting that is not dissimilar from the element of management that you have at work. And you guys are actual colleagues though, right? I mean, you're, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We are actual colleagues. Uh, in, in the same department. Well, many questions about that. I mean, one sort of, we, we do have definitely academic listeners and the question of going on the job market to gather what that was like, because um, I'm sure that the search was, was then, you know, very sort of, different than if it's, you know, one party doing that, but also and then what that leads to in terms of how you guys split things in terms of parenting. I mean, given that you have, again, the exact same job um, that probably changes the discussion versus in, in many couples. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, in the job market case, I think we're sort of lucky to be in a field where it is not there are a lot of jobs. Um, so I think if you, you know, and, and it's not uncommon for universities or departments to be hiring more than one person in the same hiring cycle. And so we did go on the job market together twice, once for junior jobs and once for senior jobs. And, you know, it like getting a job is stressful. Getting two jobs is more stressful. And I think there are a lot of, particularly in the senior job search, there were some, you know, trade-offs between 
what was best for each person. But I think in the end, they worked out. Uh, it worked out good, and we're lucky to be in the same place and in a place that we really that we really like. It's been super supportive. I think splitting stuff in your house is is tricky. I I do more parenting than my husband does. And I think that is mostly taste, uh, actually. So I think that that is mostly that I, I like it. Not that I like it more. That's, that's not the way I would put it, but that I have a higher taste for, for time with the kids, like more hours of the day. And then, you know, but so I, but I think that we, we try to split things like, you know, who's responsible if somebody is, if the childcare is sick, we try to, we try to balance that a little bit. And, you know, the, the other thing that happens is that like sometimes one person is really, is more busy than, than the other. So the last several weeks as I have been promoting this book, I have been super busy and I have been away a lot and he has been doing a lot of additional, additional parenting and he learned to make the lunches, which is not been that successful, but uh, everyone has been eating. So that's good. <laughs> I, 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 I want to ask for details, but I'm going to restrain myself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, what was just want to just tell you, it's not that complicated to make the lunches, but my kids, I have, tr- my kids are unfortunately very, very specific about what they want. And so the first time I, I will just tell you like the first time he did, he spent 45 minutes in the morning making the lunches. Okay. I just, it's not like a, a display bento box. Okay. It's a small amount of like frozen vegetables and a bagel. And, and my daughter came home and she was like, mom, he put way too much jam. Didn't you tell him not to put a lot of jam on the bagel? I was like, yeah, I actually did. I put in the notes, don't put a lot of jam on the bagel. And then she's like, you have to look at this. You have to look at this. And she like takes out her thing and she's like wiped off the jam with her, with her napkin. And then she's like, save the napkin. She can show me. It was like too much jam. There was too much jam, you know, too much jam. (laughs) He didn't read the notes. He did read them. Was that in Asana? Did what? you put that in? A, did no, you put no, that I in just a, that I just that was just an and and I had written I emailed him that. Well, clearly it needed to be in the task management software. Yeah, it needed to be. No, he needed to be able to provide feedback. It's totally yeah, right. Exactly. Well, um, and, and just to, I mean, one of the things that I loved in the last chapter, you talk about some of the best parenting advice you ever get, which was from your pediatrician when you guys were in Chicago. Um, maybe you could tell listeners that story. You were you were very worked up about you know a trip to France you were taking with with your daughter. Yeah. So we uh, so we were we were going to to France and my daughter was almost two and we had come we used to come to our pediatrician visits with these like long lists of questions that we would have. I don't think with my second kid I never have any questions, but you know, be all these questions. And in this one, it was like, okay, we're going to France and this place that we're going it has a lot of bees. And I'm, she's never been stung and I'm afraid that she's going to get stung. And if she gets stung, we're kind of far, it's really isolated. And like, what are we going to do? And like, what, you know, like, should I take an EpiPen? Should we test her in advance? I had this whole like series of different plans that we like different levels of planning that we could engage in to deal with this major problem. And I sort of finished my like hyped up story. And Dr. Lee is like a very calm person. She just looks at me and she sort of nods her head and she's like, yeah. I would just try not to think about that. And it was like, it was sort of that moment where you realize like, I am being insane. (laughs) Like this is, you know, and she said it in like a super nice way. (laughs) She doesn't like get out of my office, you weirdo. But I think it did highlight, and I, I think about that all the time in these points of parenting where you're just, you get really worked up about some little tiny thing and it's not important and there's, there's nothing you can do about it. 
like you can't you can't control that there are so many things in your parenting that you wish you could control but but you can't and you have to just let it go a little bit and i think that that's i try to try to think about just you know okay just try not to think about that and it's probably going to be fine and if there's something bad happens we'll you know we'll work on it when when it happens that's great advice. Well, I think this brings us to our love of the week um, segment where we, we talk about something that's really working out well for us this week or that we're enjoying. So Sarah and I can go first, Emily, so to give you time to think about right. it. All right. So Sarah, think about yeah, it. Sarah, what do you have for us this week? Uh, mine's sort of a strategy, which is that if you have an item that you need, you can, and it's not a terribly expensive item, but you need it in different places, you should just buy multiple of that item. Because I bought my headphones, the ones I'm wearing now, they're like 15 bucks. And I would always scramble for them when we had to record our podcast. And I was like, why don't I just buy one and keep it with my microphone? So, yes, I'm in love with the convenient headphones. <laughs> right. Um, mine is, is, is a statistical one, which was I was reminded of when, when reading Emily's book. When you talk about – so, you know, we always get wrapped up in these studies where, like, you know, it doubles your risk of whatever to do this. And you're looking at it. It's often extremely small numbers. Like, it goes from, you know, point – 01 in a thousand to point oh two in a thousand. So yes, it did double, but you know, we're still talking relatively small absolutes. So there was this fascinating number I saw in terms of health economics, the number needed to treat. I love that. Yeah. Because it how many people would have to do this intervention in order to prevent one adverse event? And so you looked at it in terms of like, you know, how many families would have to co-sleep for there to be one additional adverse event? It was something like 10,000. I mean, it's not a small number. And, uh, you know, same with like various drug interventions, like, you know, okay, 50,000 people have to take this drug over and over again, and we will prevent one incidence of of this. And, And it's just a totally different statistic. And makes it so much less likely that you will go with whatever that is versus saying, oh, it doubles your risk. So I, I, I enjoy looking at it from that side as well. So um, so I will tell you the sort of fun thing that is happening, a, a fun, nice thing that made me happy, which is that my daughter has been asking for a dog which I don't want yeah, I to do like, right now because <laughs> there's a lot of other things and she asks for it every day and I find it, it – you know, annoying. And so I've told her to ask my husband. And so she started asking him every day. And then yesterday, uh, he, he told the kids that instead we could get Venus fly traps and they were incredibly excited. And it's like taken on, I would say it's, it's about as exciting as a dog would be. And they're making plans for their Venus fly traps and a Venus fly trap is just a plant. It's just a plant. And so, you know, it's going to, we're just going to have it and it's not a dog and I'm not going to have to do anything to it. And I'm just really pleased that my kids are still young enough that they can be dissuaded from their desire for a dog by a plant. <laughs> That's awesome. And yes, That's amazing. I would definitely go for the Venus flytrap over the dog. Yeah. Or, you know, we have many- yeah, we've had one before. They actually, they keep, you know, they catch bugs. That's good. And that's a good thing to have. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Emily, thanks so much for coming on the program. We were so glad you could make the time to do this. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Really and and it. so for our listeners, again, her book is Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting from Birth to Preschool. So please check that out. Well, today's question comes from somebody who says she worked as a research scientist for a decade and then moved into the tech field for data analytics about two years ago. Um, and she's asking about the transition between academia and industry and how this has played out in how she uses her time. She says, in academia, years are spent gathering information, then a few months summarizing, culminating in a paper or grant. 
As I switched into working at tech companies, most of the deliverables are based on a four to six week work cycle. And she's found that she over-researches and over-prepares. So once, for instance, she put together a technical report, then spent days making an hour-long presentation to present to the team, only to find out I'd only have the floor for the first 15 minutes of a meeting. Um, nobody speaks for an hour straight ever. I was used to filling an hour, usually by preparing for 125% of that seminar, then cutting down to size. She says, aside from asking questions about the size of deliberals, which she figured out on her own, <laughs> this would be a good thing to ask. How do I avoid exhaustively exploring many branches, even if I can sometimes make an exciting paradigm changing finding? She um, mentioned that something I had written in the past, uh, she mentioned that as you progressed as a writer, you learned to scale your research and work to the size of the article. So if somebody assigns me a 4,000 word article, I do a different amount of research than if they assign me an 800 word article and that you sort of learn how much fits this space. She says, well, what helped you learn that skill? So time, trial and error. I don't know that there's any better answer to that. Time estimation is hard in general. I mean, this is not just a challenge for people who switch careers, though it's definitely a challenge for people who switch careers. But there are people who drive to work every single day and in their mind, it takes 30 minutes and it doesn't. It takes 45 because in their mind, it's like, well, once it took 30, like I guess when you drove to work at 5 a.m. or something, but every other time you're driving at 8 when there's more people on the road and it actually takes 45 minutes and you'd be amazed how many people haven't quite figured this out. So, I mean, one of the reasons I do tell people to track time is that it gives you a better sense of how long things actually take. Like it's very difficult to look at a spreadsheet where every day it takes you 45 minutes to get to work and continue to tell yourself that it takes 30. I mean, you could try, but it's a lot more challenging to have that cognitive dissonance there. So first, just, you know, paying attention to all these things that you'll learn, like how much time do things take? Like how much time does it take me to do a 15 minute presentation versus an hour presentation? How much time does it take me to get, you know, the the amount of research that would, would fit in this amount of space? But there's also just a difference between being well-prepared and over-prepared. And well-prepared is great. Like everybody loves people who are well-prepared. But it, since she's a scientist, I think it might help to think in terms of probability. So well-prepared is probably thinking about things in the 10 to 90th percentile of what might come up, right? So think about, you know, you know maybe probably the guy will ask me this. He probably won't, but it, there's a reasonable likelihood he will ask me this. Let me come up with that. But then you don't need to go out to the 0.001% probability of like, you know, well, what if we, you know, launch a mission to Mars? Like, how will our thing look then? <laughs> you know, that's that's just not something you really need to concern yourself with. Um, so it's just part of part of the learning curve and and then recognizing that you don't have to do everything. Think about, you know, 10 to 90%. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, you know, I know this person who wrote in kind of attributed it to a job change and you gave her that grace, but I have a feeling just from the way she writes this that it may be uh, just her nature to do a little more than she needs to be doing. And uh, we actually, this is skipping around in time a bit, but we did have a recent guest talk about how, you know, over-conscientiousness can be a problem with women and as opposed to men. Like there are actually studies that show that like, particularly in school, like there's there's a tendency towards putting a lot more in for incremental gains. You have more girls trying to get like the 99%, um, whereas a boy might get a 95 and be like, great, on to the next thing. So I, I guess I would caution this person to try to challenge herself if she really tends to fit in that overdoing it 
place, which again, I don't know for sure, but I sort of get that sense. Even in the way she writes this email, like there are so many specifics in it. It was like, <laughs> like, like I probably would have not spend as much time writing the email as she did, then figure out what how good the job needs to be and maybe go a little beyond that if that feels helps her feel like she meets her standard, but try to make sure that she's not going far, far beyond that because that can be crippling and that can be inefficient and nobody really gains anything. So I guess I think as women and as people in general, if that's your tendency, you probably need to be aware of it. Yeah. And I mean, you might look at what your colleagues are doing too, um, to pay attention to that. And you can decide to be a little better than that in terms of preparation, but not, you know, in an entirely different realm, because then it's just, you know, wasting your time. And, you know, when you spend too much time on one thing, there won't be time available to do something else. Um, Because again, there are only 24 hours in a day. So when you've massively overprepared for the hour long presentation, that's only 15 minutes anyway. Well, that means you weren't doing something else. Now, maybe it was sleeping, maybe it was hanging out with your family and relaxing, but it's also probably something work-related you weren't getting to as well. Um, So you kind of got to keep your eyes on the the big prize and and recognize that everything has a limit um, in general. As we say, done is better than perfect because there is no perfect without being done. And better is the enemy of good. Better is the yes. Exactly. All right. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. We've been talking with Emily Oster about data-driven approaches to raising children. We'll be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th minute of fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me jamie loftus and every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day who are they what made them so notorious how did the internet or the algorithm choose them and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.